Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Elizabeth Elkins and Vanessa Oliveras are the lead songwriters of the alternative country rock band Granville Automatic. They bring incredible pedigree to their partnership. They've been writing songs that have been recorded by a wide range of Nashville artists, including Billy Currington, Sugarland, Kira Isabella, Aaron Goodwin, Wanda Jackson, and Angelina Presley. Prior to teaming up, Elizabeth was the grand prize winner of the Yoko Ono-sponsored international John Lennon Songwriting Contest, and Vanessa made it to the final 12 on the second season of American Idol. They just released their fourth full album, Tiny Televisions, and they are here on Backstory Song to discuss the songs from that album and some of their earlier Granville Automatic work. Welcome to Backstory Song. I'm your host, Doug Burke, and I am thrilled and honored today to have the two female leaders of the duet, Granville Automatic, here with me, Elizabeth Elkins and Vanessa Olivares. Aw, thank you so much. So, Elizabeth, you were grand prize winner of the John Lennon Songwriting Contest, and Vanessa, on season two of American Idol, you made it to number 12 which is really impressive. I've watched your performances there and I have to commend you for the alacrity with which you dealt with Simon Cowell. Oh, well, I appreciate that. (laughs) Going back old school. (laughs) So you too, I love your work and I am so thrilled to have you on the show because your music is based and rooted in history. So every song on the new album, Tiny Televisions, is rooted in a historical story. So the, it's inspired by backstories. So this is, I'm really excited to hear the backstories of the songs, not just musically, but also the historical nature of it. And let's start with the name of the band, which is almost like part of history. It is. You know, people like to ask us what, you know, what's a Granville Automatic? And we get a lot of guesses. Some people guess a gun, some people guess a car, but it's actually an old typewriter. It's a turn of the 20th century typewriter, the very first automated typewriter ever made. And so you two have written a new book, Hidden History of Music Row. Music Row is in Nashville, Tennessee, which is where a lot of your history that inspires your songs is based on. So tell us about the book. 
Well, the book was an unexpected twist in our career. You know, we've written uh, a lot of concept records, many of which have to do with stories from history. And we put out an album in 2018 called Radio Hymns. And that record was all about Nashville's lost history. And there was an article that ran in a publication that caught an editor's eye at the History Press in Charleston. He contacted us and one of his writers, Brian Allison, who's written some great Nashville history books, and said, what do you think about these two songwriters writing a history of Music Row, a little-known secrets of history of Music Row? And we got the phone call and we thought, well, we never thought we'd be writing a book. And then we, we said, well, we got to do it. We took about a year and researched the history of what is now Music Row from about 1720 all the way up to today. So you can find that in an Amazon Kindle store near you? You can find it anywhere. Any of the online booksellers have it. And I believe a lot of the national book chains actually have physical copies as well. And I think you can buy a signed copy on your website, which is what? Yeah, you can buy a signed copy, which we always prefer, ordering it from us. GranvilleAutomatic.com slash book will take you to the page to order a book. So the first song we want to talk about is Tiny Television. This is a dark song. It sure is. The guitar was actually one of our favorite songwriters in Nashville. His name is Matt Nolan. He'd come in, we discussed, Elizabeth ran through just a ton of different ideas. And the one that caught my ear the most, I kind of looked at Matt and Elizabeth and I said, we need to write a song called Tiny Televisions. I was like, that's an amazing title and, and such a cool story, very eerie. And it does have this sort of feeling of dread throughout the whole song. And I think that the guitar, as you said, creates that kind of necessary tension. So what's the song about? Well, the song is about a building on 17th Avenue on Music Row in Nashville. It's a building known as the Little Sisters Home for the Poor. It was built around the turn of the 20th century by a group of French nuns. And it was for about half the century a place where folks who had nowhere else to go in their old age would go there and the nuns would take care of them. They had a chapel in the building. Around the middle of the century, with the advent of welfare and Medicare, Medicaid, all that stuff, those all start kind of disappearing across the country. And so this becomes a series of nursing homes. And we have a friend who's a developer, and he told us when he went into that building, when they were selling it, they were going to turn it into a major music company, BMG. And he walked in, and at this point, it had become just a very rundown building and a rundown space. And he recalls walking into this chapel and seeing a bunch of folks in their 70s, 80s, and 90s sitting and lying around the chapel watching tiny televisions. And he said it reminded him of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. 
he said it was a really kind of a, a tragic and crazy scene. And when he told us that story when we were researching the book, that image just really stood out to us. So we knew that had to be a song. And, and the irony of the fact that once that became BMG music and later Sony music, number one parties were held there all the time, big music industry events. So for me, that song is a lot like the story of Nashville. These spaces really have everything from tragedy to triumph, sort of in cyclical repetition. But I think both of us agree that's probably our favorite Granville song ever. We love that guitar riff Matt came up with. And when we went in the studio, we knew production-wise we wanted kind of a Pink Floyd vibe, a sort of a time vibe on it. And, you know, I come from a rock and roll past, and I get to bring in a little rock energy on that one. And I certainly love Vanessa's vocal on that. It's just outstanding. And I think it really is our favorite song probably we've ever done. There's one verse in the song that's really kind of a snapshot of the 1960s, referencing JFK, Vietnam, MLK, but not so overt. You have to actually pay attention to understand that that's what it's about. Yeah, that's my favorite part of the song. Is that's the bridge where we really do kind of get these snapshots of the images that might have been on those televisions and how those huge, big sort of life-changing events that were going on at that time, maybe they didn't even register for the person watching it. I try to create the feeling of the first time I saw actually Pink Floyd's The Wall. I remember watching that as a teenager and it just sort of created this weird chaos. And I think there were so many big events at that time period. And that's what we hope to get in that bridge. So I'm glad you like that part. Painting pentagrams, hearing ghosts of conversations. What does that mean? Literally in interviewing, the building is now owned by Vanderbilt University and Vanderbilt University Press is there. Interviewing a woman that worked there, she said, oh, we all heard about one of the old dormitory buildings outside there was a homeless guy living in the attic and he would paint pentagrams every night. So that's actually from a true story. I love the opening line. This is true of so many of your songs, but it just grabs you. They say suicide's the only way home tonight. I mean, you just know where this song is going. Yes. And that's also very true. The fourth floor window was often the chosen spot to commit suicide. So people used to jump out the fourth story window all the time. And we thought that was just a very stark image to open the song with. And uh, lithium and cigarettes and deadbolts on the door. That lithium, is that still used? I believe it is still used today. In fact, I had an old friend of mine whose mother was in a home and was given lithium just because of her mental state. So I do believe they still use lithium today. A heavy song. Heavy song, but a great song. Well, thank you very much. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. 
Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. talk about is ice cream yeah ice cream is a song you know a lot of these songs on this new album actually about half of them were songs that might have made radio hymns the album before it but didn't make it because they just weren't done at the time or they didn't really fit what we were doing with that album and ice cream is one of those it's this idea we've had for a while and it's a story of a woman named sarah estelle and sarah estelle was one of the very first business owners in nashville that was african-american and she before the Civil War, owned an ice cream shop downtown. And she was very popular because her ice cream was so great. She kind of was the life of many parties because even the politicians and the church elders and all the upper-class business people in Nashville wanted her ice cream at the party. So we knew we wanted to have some sort of story about really how dark that image is that she's bringing joy and happiness through food to people that are, you know, for the most part, holding anyone like her as slaves at the time. An interesting part of Sarah's history is that she actually owned her husband, who was also an African-American man. And and the idea of her owning her husband to prevent him from being sold into slavery, I think is a very powerful image. So we tried to capture some of that just dissonance between, you know, being the life of the party and her, her food being loved so much, but yet she had to own her husband to keep him close. Part of listening to your records and seeing you guys perform in your videos and live, which is really compelling, especially when you do this historical storytelling in between songs, um, is the harmonies, which typically come in on the choruses, which they do in this song. And I just love the way you guys meld. It's like an organic thing. Well, and I'll be honest with you, it's actually not me that does the main harmonies. And I'm going to turn your question over to Vanessa because Vanessa is an absolute harmony genius. But another very big part of Granville Automatic is a woman named Bethany Dickolds. And Bethany has been playing fiddle and mandolin and singing harmony with us for the entire history of the band. But Vanessa can tell you more about all the harmonies. 
Yeah, I mean, that's what I was going to say is just that Bethany is a really giant part of what we do. Bethany's voice is just absolutely stellar. She's got all the beautiful high harmonies are mostly her. Yeah, I put a lot of thought into how we construct the harmonies, how we put them together. And a lot of it, honestly, is sort of spur of the moment. I do think a lot of it out, but I do also allow for the creative process to sort of inspire me while we're recording, because oftentimes my best ideas just come to me as we're singing. Yeah, I mean, I do love, I think that's my favorite part of the recording process is creating those harmonies with Bethany. I feel like this chorus has that organic sort of ending in that way when you start with the ooh-oohs. I always ask the songwriters, did you write that down or did it just like come to you? How, like, how, Was this an organic thing that happened in the song? Because it's not written on your lyric sheet to start going ooh-ooh-ooh. No, it's uh, definitely was just a background vocal idea that came to me, not written in. Oftentimes I'll hear, you know, an instrumental part in my head that I would like to recreate with vocals instead. And if a part is missing in my head, I'll say, well, why don't we just do ahs or oohs and sing that line instead of making it a pedal steel. But the pedal steel also does mirror those oohs and ahs that you're talking about in the bridge So I wanted to make sure that the instrumentation really matched the vocal line, mirrored it just to hint at it just a little bit. So you're thinking, this is a great place for a pedal steel and I want it to sound like this. You sing the line and then you're like, that's a great line. I'll just use that and then match the pedal steel to it. Is that how that happened? No, the vocals came first for sure. Like the idea for the Oz in my head came first, but I wanted the pedal steel to match that in the bridge. And it kind of matches, so give me the steel of a gun. I love that line. Yeah, I think Vanessa's so good. And I think she hit her stride, weirdly, on our second record, An Army Without Music. She started pulling in these really almost Simon and Garfunkel-y oohs and ahs and complicated harmonies that I think really have become a trademark in a lot of our songs. So she is just a harmony genius. I personally am terrible at it, but she just can hear these parts and really does Credit to her on a lot of the arrangements for the other instruments, too. She hears that stuff and she'll guide whoever's playing with some ideas and parts, and it really comes together as a whole. We started self-producing our albums on radio hymns, and I think part of it is just her extreme gift with vocals. I love your arrangements, and I very much like the way songs start. They all start in a unique way. This one has a beautiful solo guitar with piano and then a shimmering cymbal. When we're doing the production, we do try to think of how the song sets up. And that's a pretty important part of the arrangement for sure. And then the finish is sort of the flip of that. Oh gosh, I'd have to think about the end of these songs. I think once you produce them, you know, you don't think about it too much because you're moving on to the next song at that point. But yeah, I think that's important too. You think about whether a song has a fade. There's a song on that record called Getaway Car that originally was intended to have a really long 70s vibe uh, fade at the end of it that didn't end up happening. But uh, yeah, I think you think about it in the moment and there's a million ways to start a song and a million ways to end the song. Tiny television just falls off a cliff. A rock and roll ending right there. Was that a rock and roll ending to just stop? I've used it a lot on rock records. I think it depends. I think it was intentional in the way then it goes into the really pretty intro on Ice Cream was part of the flow of the record. Summer was a gust of 
Half Acre also has this interesting organ and acoustic guitar opening. You flow into these beautiful mandolin. There's, are there strings on this song? I thought I heard strings. There's like, well, yeah, there's mandolin, and, and Bethany may have layered some fiddle parts. Do you remember, Vanessa? I do think that there are strings on Hell's. Ha- actually, Hell's is my favorite song on the album, personally. It took me a minute to get there, but I like the concept and I like the metaphor that we used. But I do think there are strings on that song. I do believe there are. So what is Hell's Half Acre? Hell's Half Acre is or was the neighborhood that surrounds Capitol Hill in Nashville. And if you've been to Nashville, the Capitol literally sits on a really high hill overlooking downtown. Until the 1950s, when they started building the interstates, that neighborhood was something that looked more like Society Hill in Philadelphia, but it was also very run down for about 80% of it. It was a really vibrant neighborhood, but also a crime-ridden neighborhood. So we really tried to recreate the feeling of what must have happened when you lose that and why that neighborhood was destroyed and the streets were renamed. And this concept, and I think Vanessa can maybe talk about it more, but this concept of just progress rolling you over and burying your history. Yeah, I mean, and I guess that's what happens when things get old is just so symbolic of a failing relationship when a place isn't as new and exciting to you as it once was, just like people can also be new and exciting to you in the beginning. The song says, in the beginning, when there's stars in your eyes, you tend to overlook a lot of the issues and the problems that are so blatantly there. I love capturing that metaphor and really using it in the song because it feels so similar to me and I often think of land and buildings as having emotions and feelings. And to me, you know, an abandoned property like that would probably feel pretty sad, like it's just been left behind. But now it's all covered in rhinestones, all covered in lies, is it? Rhinestones is kind of a fake diamond, I guess, type of lie. Yeah, Nashville gets associated with rhinestones. I mean, that's kind of a big part of the Nashville glam and the Opry. And I think this idea that Nashville moved forward and this for progress, a lot built on the country music industry is that, you know, now this is just a shiny new development or a new field or a new park or whatever they've turned it into. And you forget so quickly the beauty of what was there originally. Yeah, it was beautiful. And then it became completely dilapidated in the red light district and crime-ridden, and no one thought to save the buildings. They didn't, and I think you see this replicated across the country. St. Louis is a great example, if you know where the arch is in St. Louis. Well, that area used to be the historic riverfront. I mean, acres and acres and acres of land just taken down by, you know, at the time FDR, President Roosevelt made the decision to plow that under. But we've lost a lot of the history that connects St. Louis to the river and to uh, a long history with the French and the United States. But in the name of progress, the neighborhood had fallen into disrepair. It was crime ridden. So let's plow it under and put an arch there. I mean, that's what we've done all over the country. And I think this song really is almost a big picture idea for the way we look at history so often. So I think I agree with Vanessa. I really do like, I think we nailed the the metaphor. We wrote this with a gentleman by the name of Paul Jefferson. 
you know, there's some really cool chord changes and stuff in there that I would have never thought of. And so having Paul really make those choices, I think, gave this song a bigger, darker element. And who plays the mandolin on this? That's Bethany. Yeah, Bethany's sort of the silent third member of Granville. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful contribution. that I see is another broken mirror another place that's not for me lost in a blackberry winter north out of Tennessee I watch the creek roll sideways tilt my heart like a boat at sea the past fades fast melting in the Monsters in the Stars. Yeah, this is my mom's favorite song on the record. Every time she hears it, she'll text me or say, I just really like that song. It's something we tackled on this record that we hadn't on pre... Well, we had to some degree on other records is really trying to widen the perspectives that we wrote from. And in this case, it's from the perspective of a Native American, a Cherokee, who was a part of the Trail of Tears, which crossed what is now Woodland Street Bridge in Nashville on their way to Oklahoma. So we really wanted to catch this moment where this Native American is sort of looking down at the Cumberland River and seeing Nashville growing around this place. And she is heading on to obviously many more tragic months of walking, but headed to Oklahoma away from her homeland. So this is a song we wrote with, you know, one of the most legendary writers in Nashville, Mr. Tom Douglas. Went to his house and wrote it. He had a beautiful melody that really, I think, is a stunning chorus in particular. But yeah, I think this is a really kind of straightforward pop song in a way. But again, for me, because I can compliment Vanessa, the vocal is just, she just, she was at 110% on the vocals on this record. It's just a great vocal. Why does your mom like this song? Probably the melody. My mom probably likes it for the melody. And I think my entire family is really appreciative of history. And I think my mom has always sort of been interested in the story of the Native Americans. I don't know. I've never really asked her. She's always said it was a pretty melody and had so much emotion in it. And I think they live in northeast Alabama, in the, the mountains of northeast Alabama, which that area didn't even become a state till you know, 1830s, 40s, 50s, when all these treaties start expiring and Americans start pushing west. And you really have a sense of the Native influence in that part of the world. It's almost like their ghost kind of standing there going, great, thanks for kicking us out. What are you doing now? So that could be part of why she relates to it. 
you know, I had heard of the Trail of Tears, but I had never really studied it. And so I did for this song. I'd heard that Andrew Jackson was a bad dude, but I really think he was a really, really bad dude after reading about this story about what he did to people. And I didn't know that it started in Nashville, that, you know, it was 16,000 Cherokees that were relocated. It started at Lake Nickajack, which is near Chattanooga, on the Nashville side of Chattanooga. Jackson was a big part of why it happened. He's a very complicated figure. A lot of good things out of the Jackson years and a lot of really terrible things out of the Jackson years. But yes, he is the one that officially ordered the March West and officially broke a heck of a lot of treaties. He's someone, if you haven't read a lot about it, really complicated, fascinating character. But he also ties into one of our other songs, which is You Can Go to Hell, I'm Going to Texas, which is Davy Crockett, who basically told Jackson, you can go to hell, I'm going to Texas. It was their fight over the Trail of Tears that essentially got Crockett to the Alamo. So it's all tied in. And that's one thing I love about these songs is when those stories cross over each other. I love the line, I heard the winds, a devil in the places we will go. Just And that's just those tornadoes out in Oklahoma was the, the actual inspiration coming from the hills of North Carolina and Tennessee and North Georgia and North Alabama to a place that's just so different and a place to me thinking about it has these just horrible tornadoes all the time. I, I don't know, just sort of a line thrown in there that seemed to like, where are we going? Oh, that's what you know about it. It just seemed like a, maybe someone would have said that. I don't know. Any particular parts of this song that you love the most? Because it's really just full of metaphors. You know, honestly, my favorite is the broken down third verse on a highway bridge on some dark night sleeping with the dogs just really stands out to me. And just that third verse has a lot of emotion in it to me. I also really just enjoyed singing it and credit to Tom Douglas for that. Just the melody's really beautiful. Well, I think, Vanessa, you have an amazing ability to capture emotion, both lyrically and reflect that into the music. And so much of your music is driven by emotion. So you take these wonderful stories and turn them into these emotional vignettes. Thank you so much. You know, I, I had a vocal issue probably about six years ago that lasted for a couple of years and, and really sort of I had to adapt and alter the way that I sang. And everything I, I knew about singing had to be completely relearned and reestablished. I honestly think that that's really when I learned to use emotion in my voice. And I think part of the vocal issue was honestly a little bit of a boon because it really did help me learn to use my voice in a very different way. And then when it returned, it's never been quite the same, but when it returned to almost full force, I was able to use it in a completely new and different way that I'd never been able to do before. So sometimes tragedy can also bring really wonderful things. Well, you start this song with a whisper voice that is not common in your songs and kind of like that because this is like the trail of tears is uh, something that, you know, it's hard to talk about. Yeah, I liked the lyrics so much. It almost felt like it needed to be more spoken than sung. So I think that was my approach in the beginning. Are there any lessons for today that you're trying to communicate in this song? I think for us, the lesson in almost all our songs is that these stories need to be remembered and they need to be talked about. We're obviously at a time in American history where things are really divided 50-50 on so many issues, but 
I think history has so much to teach us. You know, I had to be personally careful on social media because people post so many things that are just historically wrong. And I think the more you can read and the more you can understand what's come before us in the terrible things that have come before us, the ways we as a country or as people or as a world have learned from those is super important. And, you know, there's the adage, of course, history is destined to repeat itself. And it's so true because over the last few weeks, I've been reminded how much Americans simply don't know their history. And I think as songwriters, we just hope that these are triggers for people to think more about it. You know, people may not know much about the Trail of Tears. There's talk of there being a national trail system, a national park based around it, which I think would be really important. But people need to understand that these stories are out there. And on our Civil War record, we told perspectives, union, confederate, horse, furniture, child, adult, male, female. This is all human emotion, and we all feel things very much in the same way. So I think for me, these songs are about if this song comes across as interesting to you, find out a little bit more about it. Think about it. Remember it when you're driving around. Um, so I think that's what we've always hoped to do is just get people thinking. Well, you certainly made me think. And even in this interview, I mean, you said Andrew Jackson is a complicated character and I was kind of disparaging about the guy. Tell me about why he was complicated. Well, I think we have a tendency to put a modern lens on any historic figure and it's difficult to do that when they weren't living today and when the world was a different place in different time periods. So I think, you know, there are good and bad arguments for Jackson. But I think my um, rule as a musician since I started playing music when I was 17 years old and we played in a series of punk rock bands and country bands is, you know, I'm very careful with anything that might be political when it comes to bands. So the only thing I'll say about Andrew Jackson is I think there are several incredible books written about Jackson. And I think he's someone that it's worth reading about and understanding his motivations and understanding why there was some evil in what he did and why there was some good in what he did. But we're in the city that is Jackson's home. I mean, the Hermitage is here and we have a boulevard called Old Hickory Boulevard. So, you know, I just feel that people are quick to make assumptions about characters without reading a lot about him. I've probably read six to eight books on Andrew Jackson another person, Teddy Roosevelt. I've probably read 14 books on Teddy Roosevelt. There's a lot of evil in Teddy Roosevelt and there's a lot of good in Teddy Roosevelt. So I think you can draw that line even to, you know, figure like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. You know, there are good things and there are bad things about him. So I just think it's important to be educated and to try to understand what's come before you and try to understand these very complicated parts of American history that have brought us to a bit of a political crossroads lately. It's very interesting. For me, I learned more about Nashville, the history of Tennessee, the history of this part of the world, not just from the Civil War era or before that, when the Trail of Tears occurred, right through modern times. And, you know, I guess this is covered a little bit in your History of Music Row. Yeah, absolutely. I think that book begins with a French fur trader named Timothy de Mumbrium, super complicated guy. You know, he... Uh, left Montreal and became the French lieutenant governor of the Illinois Territory. He ended up being involved in the American Revolution. He at various times sided with the French, the natives, the Spanish, and the Americans, and the English. He had at least two wives, maybe four or five, tons of illegitimate children. He owned slaves. He was for many years celebrated as the grand old man of Nashville, the first white settler. A lot of those things aren't true. Some of them are. And again, here we have a complicated story of a man who 
We tend to judge by today's standards when one could argue he was living hour to hour on the frontier to survive and making choices for those reasons. So complicated folks. And it starts starts with his story. You drive up Demumbrium Street to get to Music Row today. The book then goes into the Annabellum Plantations, one of which became Belmont University, which is at the head of Music Row today. The very complicated story of Adelicia Acklin, who inherited more money than anyone else in the Confederacy when her notorious slave trader husband, Isaac Franklin, died. You know, that money went on to found Belmont University. So that's a complicated story. And it goes up to a time when everyone in Nashville hated the Germans. Vanessa wrote an incredible chapter on the house that fell down about a family of German immigrants right before World War I who were ostracized from uh, the community. Before that, it talks about the many freed slave camps that were on the land that's now Music Row. And then it goes up to the beginnings of the music industry and the explosion into the 1990s internationally of the money and fame that came with people like Garth Brooks and Shania Twain and Billy Ray Cyrus. And then it talks about all these places we're losing today on Music Row as Nashville pre-pandemic was transforming and booming at a rate that I don't think any city uh, could keep up with. So yeah, it covers several centuries. One of the songs is called Goodnight House, which is about a very specific place in and around, actually in Kentucky, I believe, not even in Tennessee, right? Correct. Goodnight House is a story from our um, Civil War album, An Army Without Music, which came out, I believe, in 2015. So it's the story from the Battle of Perryville, Kentucky, which is about two hours north of Nashville. But this is a story that just stood out as really encapsulating the horror of that war. Wasn't it Robert E. Lee who said, war is so terrible, if it weren't, I might get used to it. I'm paraphrasing. But it sums that up where there was a, a terrible battle, a very quick, decisive battle in October of 1862. The Union Army was victorious, but there were many, many men who lay wounded and dying. And the general called on anyone in the town who could help save them. And there was a retired doctor he found. And they were looking for somewhere to set up basically a makeshift hospital. There was a farm nearby owned by the Goodnights. And Mr. Goodnight offered up his barn. And all through the night, he played his fiddle 
and he offered the soldiers whiskey to get them through having these amputations and these surgeries without any sort of morphine or anything. So it, I think, is a almost a look at just the horrors of war, I think, is that song. And we wrote that song when we were doing an artist residency in Seaside, Florida. And it was a song that finally kind of came together. It's a real simple song. It's just verse chorus, verse chorus, I think. It's definitely one of my favorites. And again, with the harmonies, uh, we did that record in Brooklyn, New York. I'll let Vanessa talk about that because I think when I listen back to that, I feel like, again, the vocal approach really makes that song. I actually really can't stand listening to the album vocally. For me, it was... It was really, really an awful time. That's when my, my voice sort of disappeared and that was kind of at the peak of it. So singing in that album, I just have horrible memories about just trying to do anything and everything I could to try to get myself out of my own way and out of my head. Um, so, you know, I, I just have terrible memories about it. But that song turned out fine and the video is beautiful. And Jeremy Ezel, who sang background vocals on that record and played guitar and did many, many other things, also sort of a Granville honorary member. He really just did a beautiful job with the background vocals. He's an excellent singer and songwriter in his own right and just has got this beautiful tone that so easily matches with just about anyone. But anyways, yeah, it was kind of a weird time period for me, but Good Night House is probably my favorite I guess, on the record, I think. The chorus is one of the most overtly church hymnal parts of your songwriting that I listen to, or is that off the mark? No, I think, I mean, the song starts with, I used to read the Bible before I tired of Mark Twain. I think there's a regret. There's this person who's singing it, and it's sort of an unknown. I assume it could be the farmer that's singing it. It's this idea of what he's seeing before him and the pain and the horror and the terror of this, this Civil War battle. He's kind of saying, well, God wasn't here for us. So I think there's a, a letting go of belief in good in that song. And the chorus is a sort of a saying goodbye. It's good night, boys of Kentucky. Yeah, it's this letting go. And it is supposed to sound like a hymn, I think, intentionally. And I think the harmonies were layered that way for a reason. But yeah, it's a, it's almost a God won't save us now kind of vibe. And I think with the video, we had an amazing video director named Scott Lansing, a friend of ours from Atlanta. We did that video in the mountains of North Carolina, and um, he really wanted to capture that sort of letting go at separation from faith and God that can happen when things turn tragic. And the video touches on it not only as a battle, but it touches on it with with money and love and, and power. Um, so, yeah, I think intentionally it's supposed to sound somewhat spiritual. Yeah, it's a very emotional video, I think. And I, I love it when Vanessa has the tear roll down her cheek. And then, you know, she did that like on cue. I kind of thought, wow. But, oh, really? <laughs> it wasn't like, like cry, eye drop? Cry, she Vanessa? did that really? No. She felt. She, she um, has the skills. She did that. Um, yes, she mustered that tear on her own. Well, you've done a lot of stage performing, right, Vanessa? So. How did you tap into that? Well, I've done a lot of theater. I mean, that's mostly my background has been in musical theater. And I got to do Hairspray in Toronto, which was awesome for like a year. And so with the background in theater and the acting background, it's uh, certainly not too much of a challenge for me to channel that part of myself and 
figure out how to cry on cue. <laughs> well, it's beautiful. And then it kind of sh emotionally shifts in the video and it does turn into these couples kissing by the fire and fireworks. Somewhat of a contrast to the song in that respect. Yeah, intentionally. And I would say I was acting in that video too. I'm pretending like I'm playing that piano part, which is more complicated than I can really play. But I did, it is written on piano, but Matt Keating in New York played piano on that, much better piano player than I am. You had me fooled. I thought you were playing it. <laughs> no, I could play it enough that it would sound like the song, but it wouldn't be quite as fancy as the choices Matt made. He's a classically trained piano player. So um, I am a self-taught piano player, but Yes. Intentionally, it took a very different turn. The end of the video really gets into this, like I said, the inner workings of people's relationships and how things can go wrong and how love can feel like a war sometimes too. So again, Scott Lansing's vision on that video, so much fun. I mean, he had it planned out and he had the drone shots back when drones were just starting to be popular and he had the fireworks and he did a really, really cool job with that. He did our video for another song called Never on a Sunday off our first album as well. And he's He's doing a lot of really like award-winning documentaries now. Scott's a cool dude. And I think he did a modern take on that song that really makes you think about it differently. And again, our goal is always just to make people think. Well, this one made me think because we are sort of in this era where we are kind of this divided nation. And I think people on both sides need to say goodbye to some thoughts and <laughs> and put them to sleep so that we can find a unified center of peacefulness. And that's my own evangelizing, which I don't usually do on this podcast at all. I like to stay out of it, but like it really, good night, old Kentucky, long may you sleep. Good night, boys of Kentucky. I know where we'll meet. I think, yeah, I think to me, the most important thing, and you're right, it's always tough to talk politics and religion. Maybe I'll just start a podcast called Politics and Religion and everybody be angry at each other by the end of the 30 minutes. But for me, I think what we need more as a country right now is the ability for both sides to have an open dialogue where each side's listen. I think there's too much on either side of we're right and you must be like us. And I think that's dangerous. Historically, that's extraordinarily dangerous. So and that's just my personal opinion. I'm sure Vanessa has a different one. But for me, it's just a question of maybe neither side is right in everything. And we have to be able to talk about it and have educated, interesting debates and discussions. And I feel like that's lost a lot lately. Well, that's a perfect segue to your next song. You can go to hell. I'm going to Texas. Patience wearing thin Long road of love gone wrong Between you and me and him So you can take old hickory I never did believe Those lies and alibis Are never what they seem I'm riding out in the morning Cause there's a promise land You can call me crazy
Yeah, exactly. Vanessa can tell you where this all came from. So my dad and I in Texas, we wanted to get a commemorative Texas tattoo and had been trying to figure out what to get for a really long time. And it still hasn't happened, but found this quote by Davy Crockett. So I was like, oh, I don't want like the typical stamp of Texas or, you know, made in Texas brand or something like that. So I found this quote by Davy Crockett that said, you may all go to hell. I'm going to Texas. And I was like, perfect. That's the one. And I told Elizabeth and we were like, man, is this a song? Because if it's not a song, then we need to write it as a song. So fortunately, our friend Ted Russell Camp also thought it would be an excellent concept and title for a song. So we wrote it together and he's actually releasing it, I believe, next month. I'm adding some vocals to his version tomorrow. Oh, fantastic. It's, it is your most played song on Spotify. So I don't know if you knew that. The algorithms have picked that one as the audience's favorite. That probably is an audience favorite. You know, we've been playing it for probably half the life of the band and finally recorded it and put it out as a single last year. But it is, it's a, it's a song that in particular, we tour in Texas a lot. Vanessa's from Texas. We love playing out there. In fact, our last two shows right before the pandemic shutdown were with the Steel Drivers in Houston and Dallas, and they were just really fun, incredible shows, great audiences. So yeah, that, that probably is our sort of, our fan favorite is that song. It's total joy to get to play with those guys. They have, the Steel Drivers have such a great audience who are open to new music. They're so supportive of us. We've done maybe eight, 10 shows with them over the last three or four years. Hopefully we'll be doing more when live shows return, hopefully in, in the next six months. We can't wait. So you can go to hell. I'm going to Texas. This is about Davy Crockett, another historical figure. It is. It's a famous quote by Davy Crockett. Crockett was a representative from the state of Tennessee, and he lost his third re-election bid to Congress. And a lot of that is because of what we were just talking about, his argument with Jackson about whether or not to remove the Indians from their native lands and send them west. He was really hurt that the people of Tennessee did not vote him back in for a third term. And in his concession speech, he famously said, you, can, you may all go to hell, I'm going to Texas. And uh, little did he know he was headed out to his death at the Alamo. But uh, there were a lot of people across Tennessee and Kentucky and the South that also went to Texas. There are numerous cabins that have GTT carved in them that says gone to Texas. It's kind of a thing to do there for a little bit. But yeah, we wrote it really from Crockett's perspective. And it's got a really kind of sing-along fun chorus. We usually get the audience singing along by the second chorus. And, you know, I think we also think it applies to our lives, too. You know, we both love Texas a lot. Vanessa, you were born in Sugarland, if I'm correct, and that's deep in the heart of Texas, is it not? Is that what a suburb of? Yeah, I was born in Houston, so there are many different little pockets of Houston. Sugarland's one of those families from there, so I go visit whenever I can. I didn't realize that Houston's the third largest city in America, which is pretty stunning. It's, I didn't realize how vast it was. Yeah, it's huge. It's got great people. Houston's got an amazing, amazing group of people. Everybody who I've ever met from Houston is always like nice and friendly. And I just can't understand how because it's so damn hot there. I'd be grumpy. Have you ever told anybody you can go to hell? I'm going to Texas. <laughs> no, not not exactly. I haven't had to. So <laughs> it's not your nature to do that. No, not totally. I'm pretty nice in general till somebody pisses me off too much. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys have this really unique songwriting chemistry. Have you ever written a song where you said, this is perfect for this voice? And if so, what song have you written and what voice would you like to record that song? Well, that's a layered question for us because we have 
as a songwriting pair, we write obviously anything Granville Automatic does, but we also write for other artists. And that's been a goal as professional songwriters. We've had, you know, major country artists and artists in different genres record our songs. So I think as professional writers, you think of a lot, you know, we've both probably written a thousand songs each over the last three to four years. And you're always thinking about, is this a song that Willie Nelson would sing? Is this a song Garth Brooks would sing? Is this a song, you know, Linda Ronstadt could have sung? So I think that's a tough question for us because we were always looking on the commercial side for here's a song we really want Kenny Chesney to cut, or we really want. So I have never, on an artistic creative side, I've never sat down and written a song and thought, oh, I really want this person to sing it. But I mean, if we're talking about Granville Automatic songs for me on our first album, there's a song called Blood and Gold. And I personally would love for Willie Nelson to record that song. I just think it's a song about the history of the horse and the American West and the Mustangs. To me, it's a perfect song for Willie. But I'm curious for your thoughts on Doug's question. Um, I mean, man, I, again, I kind of am with Elizabeth. I don't really think when I'm writing something, oh, man, you know, I'd love for so-and-so to cut it. Typically, I'm I'm either writing a song to cut uh, for one of my projects or you know, I just happen to write a song that I think, oh, you know what, maybe, maybe this would fit this person if it's not right for my band. But Elizabeth and I operate on a couple of different levels in terms of songwriting. I think there's always a very clear cut destination in terms of are we writing for ourselves or are we writing for other people? And when we're writing for other people, we're typically co-writing with another artist and we're writing for them. Or, you know, we know for certain, oh, Kenny Chesney's looking right now, or Brad Paisley's looking, or, you know, Lady Annabellum's looking, why don't we shoot for something, you know, that they would cut today? So yeah, I mean, I think because there are so many different layers to what we do, that thought process does sort of come into play on occasion, but only intentionally so. When did you start writing songs and why did you start writing songs? I started writing songs, gosh, when I was probably 16 and I started like many songwriters writing bad poetry, probably as an early teenager. And I think I just got fascinated. It was about the time I really just started getting fascinated with other musicians and certain artists and songwriters. And I just, rather than wanting to go see them and be in the front row, I wanted to write songs like they did. I wanted to write songs that moved people. So I started writing songs and they were just terrible. They were really bad. And then <laughs> I got into a punk rock band and wrote rock songs for a long, long time. But yeah, for me, I was, uh, it was late teen years when I first, when I first wrote a song. I started writing when I was probably like five years old, just in my room. Wow. I would always just like make up my own songs. My mom said I would just like walk around the house making up my own songs all the time. And then I guess when I was maybe like 10 ish, 11 ish. I started, do you remember back in the day when there were tapes, cassette tapes, and it was a single version of a, a cassette tape that an artist would release. And basically one side would be the actual single. And a lot of times for the other side, particularly in like R&B and pop, they would have an instrumental version of that song. So I started putting in my tape on the instrumental side of whatever song I was listening to and would make up my own songs to that track. So I was top lining basically without knowing it um, at the age of like 10. And then I guess when I was maybe 14 or 15 is when I got together with 
a guitar player for the first time and learned like, oh, this is a thing. Like I can actually do this for real. So I would say like seriously started writing probably more when I was like 14 or 15. Do you remember where you were the first time you heard one of your songs on the radio? Oh, wow. You know, I, I don't. <laughs> I'm trying to think because probably my first song ever on the radio was in uh, in Canada. I had like a top 10 single in Canada. But that was after American Idol. Yeah, that was that was post-Idol. Um, before that, I didn't really have any radio success or anything. So yeah, Canada was probably the first time I ever heard myself on the radio. And it was cool. I mean, you know, it, it works very differently radio in Canada than it does here. And I wish it worked more like it does in Canada here, honestly. And what are the differences? It's not necessarily easier to get your songs played, but DJs have a little bit more control in terms of, I mean, I, I know this is the way it used to work in terms of what they're allowed to play. So when I did a radio tour for my single, we actually went and knocked on doors and went into different studios across Canada and asked them to play our song and like would sit down and hang out with them for a minute and they could decide whether or not they wanted to put it in rotation or not. So it's just feels a little bit more grassroots and a little bit more the way that it should feel, I think, in Canada in terms of radio and radio promotion. Well, I have to thank you both. This has been a real treat and a thrill and an honor to have Elizabeth Elkins and Vanessa Oliveras on our show from Granville Automatic. And we can't wait for COVID to be over so we can see you live performing your new record, Tiny Televisions. Is there anything you would like to add for our audience? No, I mean, Doug, thank you for having us. Like you said earlier, we do have the book out. You can find it on Amazon. You can find it on our website just granvilleautomatic.com and you can buy all the CDs and the book from us directly. We'll sign them for you and you can order them on our website. So I'd like to thank uh, my recording engineer in the recording booth, DJ Wyatt Schmidt. You can listen to his music out there. Yeah. Thank you, Wyatt. We really appreciate what you do for us and our social media director, MC Owens for helping promote these great songwriters on our show.